please, uh, tonight. Uh, well, you don't have to come with me, but I, I want to just look at two verses. Uh, one in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and then one in Jude, Jude 3. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And in Jude, verse 3, it's a little book just before Revelation. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once, delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. This is a generation whenever we have to contend earnestly for the faith, when we will be called upon to give a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and with fear. And so tonight I want to talk about some of those questions and comments that people ask or make to you whenever they discover that you are a Christian, maybe in the workplace, at university or school or or among your neighbors, or even within your own family circle. And they will ask you very pointedly sometimes particular questions. And it would be good if we had some kind of an answer for them. Now there's various reasons why people are going to ask you questions about the Christian faith. It may be simply just to deflect you. Uh, a kind of a smokescreen. You know, once they know you're a believer, and particularly if in conversation they feel that you are steering the conversation around and you're about to share your faith. And oftentimes they're cute enough to recognize that, and therefore they will ask you a question. They will throw in the hand grenade, as it were, and ask you a question just to deflect you, to put you off, to shut you up, in other words, to make a smokescreen. So sometimes that's the reason why they ask a question or make a comment. Or it may simply be because they're hostile. They don't like Christians, and they certainly don't like you as a Christian, and so they'll take every opportunity to be hostile towards you and can be very rude at times and ignorant and try to put you down or such like. Sometimes... People are just like that. I know that from experience because I have worked with people like that. He used to try to bait me. Anybody ever try to bait you? Say something to goad you? You know, to get your hackles up? Well, sometimes people are just hostile. Or it may be because they're just simply flippant. You know, they're smart alecks. A lot of smart alecks about, aren't they? You know, and they've always got that just kind of smarty remark to make. Uh, to kind of put you down and put you in your place, as it were. Or, on the other hand, they may be entirely sincere and are actually searching for the truth. It's wonderful when you meet somebody who is sincerely searching 
for the truth. Or better still, it may be because they are actually under conviction. And they're under conviction, and every time they look at you or in conversation with you, they feel that conviction. And, and that causes them to ask you questions or make comments. Or it could be that they have no religious background at all, uh, or even that they have another religious background and they're just simply curious about yours. They just want to know things. They don't know anything about Christianity. They're never brought up as in a Christian home or even in a Christian country, as it were. And they've been brought up in another faith, another culture. And so in conversation, they're curious about you and your lifestyle and what it means to be a Christian. And oftentimes, that's a great opportunity to share your faith. Or you may have gained their confidence and respect and they just feel comfortable and safe talking to you. That would be wonderful if that's the case. That they have got to know you well enough and to know your temperament and to see your lifestyle and to feel that you are genuine, that you are the real deal. And therefore, that they feel confident enough and safe enough to be able to ask you some questions. So, there's all kinds of reasons why people ask these types of questions. Uh, so we have to sense where the person is, where they're coming from. Because the Bible says that we're not to cast our pearls before swine. Uh, but on the other hand, if we sense where they're coming from and we feel there is a genuine opening, the person's genuine, they're real, they're not flippant, they're not rude, they're not hostile, whatever, but they're genuine, then we ought to be able to give some kind of an answer uh, to their Questions. Now, let me just say right away that uh, all of us has been in a position where somebody has asked a question. At that moment, we do not have the answer. Well, simply all you have to do is say, it's a wonderful question, it's a great question, and I do not have the answer to that question right now. But I promise you, I will come back to you, and I will try to help you with an answer. And that way you're being totally honest. And, and believe me, they would rather you do that then just waffle. <laughs> you know, there's no good waffling in front of people. Just be honest. If you haven't got the answer, at least respect that and say, I haven't got it right now, but I'll get back to you. And what can they say about that? At least you're not being a smart aleck. Sure, you're not. You're being honest. Now, one of the questions, and there's no order in these, by the way, I'm only going to give you just a few, but there's no order of importance but this first one is one that comes up fairly regularly. The first question is this. If there is a God at all, why does he allow suffering to continue in this world? Hands up, he's heard that. In the Belfast Telegraph on Saturdays, in the church's page, there's a little article, it's a little column with about, I think it's about five, six questions. And it's the same questions every week, only they're asked to a different person. And the, and, and the person usually is some church leader or some Christian leader. And the questions are simple questions like, do you believe God is a man or a woman? Believe it or not. Uh, or uh, just different questions. What was your greatest spiritual moment of enlightenment? But one of the questions is this. 
what would be the question you would most like to ask God when you meet him? And almost invariably, and these are church leaders, almost invariably it's this question, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why does God allow it to continue? Now you would think, would you not, that church leaders at least would have some kind of a handle on it, wouldn't you? So it's a big question. And and it sounds a fair question. If we maintain that God is a good God, that God is a God of love, that God is a God that has all power, then why in the world doesn't he step in and just stop it? Why doesn't he come in and just stop all the stuff that's going right, all the wrongs? Stop all the pain and the suffering. Deal with the injustices and the poverty. The world is full of death and dying and disease. It's awful. Inequality. Half the world's starving tonight. When you go home tonight, you'll probably eat something. Half the world will be at home tonight and they'll have nothing to eat. Not tonight, but not even tomorrow or the next day. That's how they will wake up every day of their lives. Half the world's like that tonight. It's awful. The murder of innocents, exploitation, war, not to mention the terrible natural disasters. And so it seems a fair question. If God is God, he's a God of love, he's a God of mercy, we say, he's a God of compassion, he's a God who's all-powerful, well then just why doesn't he just step in and do something about it? Well, regarding an answer to that, this world is not the world that once was And it's not the world that will yet be. The world that once was, that God created, was a perfect world. It was a paradise. The world that will yet to be, when you read in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, will be a perfect world, a paradise again. But something catastrophic happened between the world that was and the world that is yet to be, the world that we live in. And that catastrophic something was the devil and sin. And he is first mentioned in Genesis 3 and last mentioned in Revelation 20. And between all of that period of history, his evil fingerprints is in every part of society. And we see this throughout the world, throughout the generations. Think of the millions upon millions of lives that have been lost because of war, because of dictators, because of the Hitlers and the Stalins, and because of the Paul Potts and the Mazi tongues and on and on. You could go all night talking to these dictators who slaughtered millions upon millions of human beings. For no other reason than their great egos. Megalomaniacs they were. Energized. Driven by Satan himself and by sin. But still the question remains. Why doesn't God step in and stop it? Well okay. Let me ask you this. What should he stop What sin should he deal with first? Murder. That would be a good start, wouldn't it? We'd all be happy tonight if there was no more murder in this world. What about terrorism? 
or child molestation or exploitation of the poor? What about injustice? That would be good if all that was stopped, wouldn't it? And everybody, even every non-believer would say, Amen to that. That would be a far better world if we had none of that. But let me ask you this. What about abortion? Would you like God to stop that? Because there's a lot of people wouldn't. There's a lot of people wouldn't. There's a lot of people who think, but wait a minute, I'm pro-choice. And I think it's a woman's right. And how dare anybody, even God, stop it? Because it's my right. Before 1968, there was a campaign in Great Britain. A campaign to legalize abortion. And the people who want to legalize things that are wrong always present the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is the death of the mother giving birth. If the mother's life is in danger, if she's in danger of dying for giving birth, then surely abortion in that instance. And that's fair enough. And that's the case that was presented first and foremost. The worst case scenario. Laws were enacted, laws were passed. From 1968, when the law was passed, till 2011, last year, in England and Wales, there were 6.4 million abortions. How many of those do you suppose was because the life of the mother was threatened and endangered of death? Two million? 200,000? 100,000? 1,000? Actually, 143. 143 abortions were carried out where the life of the mother was definitely in danger out of 6.4 million. So would we want abortion stopped? Yes. But do you think if there was a movement today to stop it, how, do you, how far do you think that would get? How many governments would bag it? I don't know any that would bag it, actually. What about pornography? Be all right if God stopped that? As believers, we would say, absolutely. But what a hue and cry there would be from the liberals in society or from the, <laughs> the Hollywood crowd. I mean, they would go absolutely nuts, wouldn't they? Freedom of expression. Censorship. You can't have any kind of censorship because that would do away with my freedom of expression. See how tricky this gets? You see how selective we become when we say, why doesn't God stop things? What about theft or lying or greed or jealousy or envy or pride? What about all those commandments that every one of us broke? 
What if God tonight was to judge you on the commandments you broke? What in his justice he was to judge you tonight on the commandments you broke? Where would you be? Where would I be? If we'd be in hell, that's where we'd be. So, where would you like them to start? What sin of yours would you like them to start with to judge? It's a different story, isn't it? Now, here's the good news. God has already judged Satan and he's already judged sin. Satan has already been judged. Sentence has already been passed. All he awaits is his execution. And you'll find that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And I'll read it to you. You can read that later. But that is his final execution, as it were. That's what awaits him. So the Satan question has been dealt with. What about the sin question? It's been dealt with also. Jesus Christ dealt with it on the cross where he gave his life to save us from our sins, to become our savior, to make us a new creature in Christ. So the sin question's been dealt with. But what about the sinner question? Ah, the sinner question. What are you going to do with this man called Jesus? That's the sinner question. Are you going to receive him? Are you going to continue to reject him? Because that's the big question. That's the question God wants to know. What are we going to do with his son Jesus who gave his life for us? And so when people just say, well, if there's a God at all, why doesn't he just step in and stop it? You say, well, stop what? And just go through a few of those big things. And they'll agree with you. Until it comes to the personal thing. Until it comes to something they disagree with. Until it comes to something like pornography or abortion or some right they think people should have then. <laughs> There's no agreement in that. Well, I wouldn't want God to interfere with that because that's my business. In fact, most of the world's problems has been caused by man's sinful fallen state. God has put certain laws within nature and we flout those laws, we break them and we suffer the consequences. We pollute our atmosphere, we poison our food, we poison our rivers or lakes or seas with epidemics of STDs AIDS is rife in Africa. There's some nations actually that are being destroyed, that are being just ripped apart by AIDS alone. Thousands have died. Millions have died, in fact, in Africa. We murder the elderly. We molest our young. We're addicted to violence. We have corrupt governments and institutions. We talk about the bankers today. How corrupt are the bankers we despise the good. Anyone who's a good person who stands up and takes a stand for something, they're pilloried, laughed at, mocked. 
You remember September 11, 2001? That terrible event in America, darkest day in America's history, and how those Islamic terrorists threw their, flew their planes into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon, and almost 3,000 people lost their lives. Two days later, Graham Lotz, Anne Graham Lotz, who's Billy Graham's uh, second daughter, she's on the CBS show, the early show, and Jane Clayson was interviewing her and asking what her dad thought about these things. And so it was quite an interesting interview. But then in the middle of it, Jane Clayson asked this question. She says, I've heard people say, those who are religious and those who are not, if God is good, how could God let this happen? To that you say, what would you have said? Live television. Going out to the whole nation. And Graham Lotz said, I say God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also that for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life and our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. We need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we're sorry we have treated you this way and we invite you now to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. We have our trust in God on our coins and now we need to practice it. Hmm. A little bit later, somebody picked up on this and anonymously wrote this article and said, in light of recent events and terrorist attacks, school shootings, etc. Let's see, I think it started when Madeleine Murray O'Hare complained that she didn't want any prayer in our schools. And we said, okay. Then someone said, you better not read the Bible in school. The Bible that says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, love your neighbor as yourself. And we said, okay. Then Dr. Benjamin Spock said we shouldn't spank our children when they misbehave because their little personalities would be warped and we might damage their self-esteem. And we said, an expert should know what he's talking about. So we said, okay. Then someone said, teachers and principals better not discipline our children when they misbehave. And the school administrator said, no faculty member in his, this school better touch a student when they misbehave because we don't want any bad publicity and we surely don't want to be sued. Now it says there's a big difference between disciplining and touching and beating and smacking and humiliating, kicking, etc. And we said, okay. Then someone said, let our daughters have abortions if they want. And they don't even have to tell their parents. And we said, okay. Then some wise school board members said, since all boys will be boys, they're going to do it anyway. Let's give their sons and their daughters all the condoms they want, and they can have all the safe sex that they desire, and we won't have to tell their parents they got them at school. And we said, okay. That's happening in Britain as well. Then some of our top elected officials said it doesn't matter what we do in private as long as we do our jobs. And agreeing with them, we said it doesn't matter to me what anyone, including the president, does in private as long as I have a job and the economy is good. 
Then someone said, let's print magazines with pictures of nude women and call it wholesome, down-to-earth appreciation for the body, beauty of the female body. And we said, okay. Then someone else took the appreciation step further, published pictures of naked children, and stepped further still by making them available on the internet. And we said, okay, they are entitled to their free speech. Then the entertainment industry said, let's make TV shows and movies that promote profanity, violence, illicit sex, let the record music that encourages rape, drugs, murder, suicide, and satanic themes. And we said, it's just entertainment. It is no adverse effect. And nobody takes it serious anyway, so go right ahead. And now we're asking ourselves why our children have no conscience, why they don't know right from wrong, and why it doesn't bother them to kill strangers, their classmates, and themselves. And probably if we think about it long and hard enough, we can figure it out. I think it has got to do a great deal with what we reap. We reap what we shall sow. And then, as if somebody had written a letter to God, Dear God, why didn't you save that little girl killed in the classroom? Sincerely. Concerned student. Could the reply be, Dear concerned student, I'm not allowed in schools. Sincerely, God. (laughs) And so if there is a God at all, why does he allow these horrible things to continue if he's a God of love? The implication implies that if God was a God of love, he wouldn't do it. If God was a God of power, he could stop it. But he isn't, so he mustn't be a God of love. So why follow him? But when you get right down to it, there's another agenda going on, isn't there? Here's another question. If God is love, how can he send anyone to hell? Big question in the theological world today, by the way. God is a God of love. How can he send anyone to hell? Well, in the first place, Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41, that hell was made for the devil and his angels. That's who it was made for. But man is a rebel against God. And God in his mercy comes to man again and again and again and pleads with him. But man keeps refusing, keeps rebelling. And God comes again and pleads with him to receive his son, to be saved from our sins. But we have rebelled against him again and again. So in this state of rebellion, he cannot enter into heaven. For heaven to be heaven, then there can be no sin No sickness, no disease, no tears, no fear, and no one who is in rebellion against Almighty God. It wouldn't be heaven. If God allowed rebels into heaven, then that spirit of rebellion and pride would be rampant in heaven. It wouldn't be heaven. So God will not allow rebels into heaven. In Revelation 22, the very last chapter of Revelation, Jesus speaking, 
verse 12, <clears throat> excuse me, and behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments and they that have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So in other words, God is not going to let anybody into heaven who practices such things. Otherwise, it wouldn't be heaven. It would be anarchy and chaos. So God made hell primarily for the devil and for his angels. But actually, all who rebel against the Son of God, all who refuse the Son of God, with all of his pleadings, with all of his mercy, with all of his promptings that he gives, there's only one place for them. And that's that eternal prison called hell. Can you take any more? Here's one. You'll get this quite a lot. Why are there so many religions? Surely they all can't be wrong. And that is often said that religion is man's attempt at finding God. It's man's attempt at trying to deal with the consequences of sin and guilt. Now to deal with the consequences of sin and guilt, there are religions who, who fast a lot. There's others who deny any pleasures in life. There's others who make tremendous sacrifices. Some are mind-centered, some are body-centered. But all of them are trying to go about to establish their own righteousness and refuse the righteousness which is of God in Christ, Romans 10, 3. Being ignorant of the righteousness which is in God, they try to establish their own righteousness. Actually, Christianity is based in repentance from dead works and faith in Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. Repentance from dead works, faith in Jesus Christ. And it's based on the mercy and on the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 8-10. But you see, man is inherently religious. <laughs> man will worship. Cannot avoid worshiping. Say, so what about the atheist? The atheist worships man. That's whom he worships. Some of them worship science, technology. That's what they worship. Say, so what do you mean worship? Well, what you devote your time and your energies and your will and your life to, that's what you worship. Mr. Dawkins, the atheist, says, I don't worship, but he does. He's got his own shrine that he worships at. It's called science. Because he says science is the answer to everything. We don't need God. God is just some old superstitious belief. But we don't need that. 
Because we've got science. It's got the answer to everything he says. That's his God. That's what he worships. Well, people say, well, surely they all can't be wrong. I would say, surely they all can't be right. <laughs> can't all be right. And of course, there's this idea of a mountain. God's at the top of the mountain. And it doesn't matter what way you climb up the mountain, you'll eventually get to God. So it doesn't matter if you're up this side or this side or that side or this side. And they liken that to different religions, of different views. But they all climb the same mountain. They all get to the same God. Rubbish. Not a nonsense. That'll take you to hell. That's where that'll take you. That's not Bible truth. The Bible is absolutely adamant. There is only one way, isn't there? That way is Jesus. There is no other way. Paul said there is no other mediator between God and man other than the man Christ Jesus. Peter said there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Absolutely adamant, straight, no gray areas. You either believe it or you don't believe it. You accept it or you reject it. But there's no in-between areas. So, what about all these religions? Well, they can't all be right, can they? And Jesus made it clear that he was and is the only one that is right. I am the way, I am the life, and I am the truth. No one can come unto the Father except through him. Those were his own words. Now here's another one. We're almost through. There is nothing beyond the grave. When you're dead, you're dead. How convenient. <laughs> Live like a dog, die like a dog, bury like a dog. <laughs> what an empty, futile, useless belief that is. There is nothing beyond the grave when you're dead, you're dead. What if you are wrong? What if the Bible is right, the prophets are right, the Christians are right, and you're wrong? Eternity is an awful long time to live with such a massive mistake. If the Christian is wrong, then Jesus lied. And the Bible is a fable. And we're all fools to believe it. If the Christian is wrong, then heaven is not real. There is no hell. And there is no judgment to come. Then there will be no justice. For all those that seem to escape justice in this life. That we look at and say, how bad is that? How wicked is that? They get off scot-free. Well, maybe in this life, but in the next life, there's the judgment seat of God. But if Christians are wrong, then there will be no balancing of the books. There will be no wrongs righted in the next life. See, this was the man in Luke 12 who said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words... I might as well do everything in this life because there is no next life. What a foolish belief. What a foolish belief. 
And then the final one, because we'll close. It's too hot tonight, isn't it? You're sitting there melting, aren't you? Who made God? <laughs> That's a smart aleck question, isn't it? Well, who made God? Tell me. Nobody made God. Not even God made God. God is first cause. There cannot be an effect without a first cause. And God is the first cause. Everything made has a maker. Everything built has a builder. Everything designed has a designer. But now we're told, well, as Christians, we believe in ex nihilo, that God created something out of nothing. But now, Stephen Hawking says that nothing created something out of nothing. And we're the ones that are stupid? <laughs> eh? We're the ones that only has faith, but no science. And he's saying that nothing created something out of nothing. At least we say God created something out of nothing. I mean, how foolish and ridiculous can you be? But they'll say anything, anything, then enter just God into the equation. Because once you enter just God into the equation, then you're responsible. Then you are accountable. And they don't want to be accountable to God or anybody other than themselves. The dictionary definition of cosmos is the universe, the system of order and harmony in creation. Does an explosion bring order and harmony? Or does it bring chaos and disharmony? A few years ago, whenever the bomb was up that street at the police station, and that thing went up, and half a mile the windows was blown in, including the windows in this building, which is a long way from it. Christine's house there, her house there, the doors from the front to the back was all lined up against the back door, wasn't it? You think somebody took them off their hinges and just folded them neatly up against the back door. And it was chaos. It was destruction. It wasn't order. They didn't order anything. It just destroyed. But we're being told today that that big explosion, that big bang, you see, it was the thing that brought order. And out of that chaos came the order. No wonder 14 Psalm verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Somebody on Facebook the other day said, if the fool says in his heart, there is no God, what does he say with his mouth? That's what he says in his heart. <laughs> Amen. 
And so today, Christianity is coming under tremendous attack. We're being made to look foolish, ignorant, unscientific. But aren't you glad the Bible doesn't change? I was reading a little th- an article last night in Answers in Genesis, uh, talking about the age of the earth and so forth, and how it keeps changing. And how many times over this past 100 years that science keeps changing it? Umpteen times it changes. No matter what they tell you today, in 10 years' time, 5 years' time, tomorrow, they're going to tell you something else because they don't know. But this book doesn't change. God doesn't have to change His Word because what He said was true in the first place. And it's accurate. And it's right. When we say, well, the Bible's not a science book, it's, it's not a history book, it's not this or it's not that, it's a spiritual book, and that's true. But if you can't trust its history, what can you trust? If you see science in it, and there is science in it, by the way, particularly in the book of Job, if you see that and you can't trust that, what can you trust? What bit are you going to trust? What bit are you going to throw out? And that's what's happened to liberal churches today. They say, well, you see, it doesn't matter about those things because, you see, you just take those spiritual bits and you spiritualize it and the rest of it's just wee stories. And they get changed over the cultures over the years. And every culture's had their own stories. And, you know, the Hebrews had theirs and the Greeks had theirs and they just put it all in there. So you can, you can make what you will of those. It doesn't really matter. Well, it does really matter because what are you going to believe in the end? This book is true from cover to cover. And we have to believe it. And we better believe it. And we're going to come under more pressure than ever before to deny it. (laughs) Particularly those of you at school, those of you at university. I made a comment about Bible school the other week and I should have said not all Bible schools are like that. A lot of Bible schools you go to today and if you have any faith going in, you'll have none coming out because they'll just destroy it. One church man told me one time about a Bible school his son went to. He said, I wouldn't send a dog to it. Wouldn't send a dog to it. He said, it would absolutely destroy your faith. And that's the world we live in today. So we've got to know this book. And we've got to believe it. And we've got to trust it. And we've got to say, that's God's word. That is gospel truth. And I'm going to stand on that. And science and technology can change everything they like. But this is not going to change. So I'm going to stand on this rock. It's never going to change, amen? Because this is the unalterable word of the living God. And we trust it and we believe it with all of our hearts, amen? Let's pray.